Brought to you by the Hockey Podcast Network. Welcome to Drop Pass Podcast, bud. 88th episode officially underway, which means that we have reached the final destination of our annual season previews. And also, that is time for me to finally give you my personal predictions concerning individual trophy races, regular season standings, and playoff teams just like last year. So, I'll do my best to make sure that we keep this thing in a reasonable length since we've systematically passed the 70 minute mark and I want to keep this entertaining for you, but we'll see how long I end up tugging Edmonton's deadly duo today. We are just about a week away from the official start of the NHL 2023-2024 season and in all honesty this summer went by faster than I anticipated, but At the same time, new hockey season is just around the corner, so I have nothing really to complain about because I get to dial into the best hockey league in the world and simultaneously get to create content for you guys to enjoy, so things could be much worse that I can tell you eye to eye. But just before we kick off the intro music once more for the Pacific Division, I have the fortune to tell you that another guest will be appearing on the show already next week, so Make sure you tune in and let your buddies know about it as well because our upcoming guest has accolades and championships to share and has skated in the bright lights as well. So that's an episode you definitely don't want to miss. But now let's get this show on the road without further ado. Let's get go. And here we go for the one last time when it comes to NHL season previews. At this point, you more than likely are already familiar with the concept, so I won't waste any time breaking down the layout for today's episode. So let's just jump straight into our first team of the Pacific Division. And that, of course, is the Anaheim Ducks, who manned the last spot in the entire league after 82 games had been played. And because of it, at the best odds for landing Connor Bedard, but... We all know at this point that they got the short end of the stick and ended up drafting Swedish forward Leo Carlson with their second overall pick. They finished the year with 23 wins, 47 losses and 12 overtime losses and despite their recent coaching change, they are not expected to create many waves in the West due to their young and inexperienced lineup. Plus of course the overall strength of for example the Pacific Division alone. Pat Verbeek was appointed as their new GM in 2022 and was pretty much handed a pre-baked cake waiting for some decorating, but that cake in fact is now in the process of souring since their two young studs, Trevor Segris and Jamie Drysdale, are still without contracts and there seems to be a major disagreement between the Ducks cabinet section and their agents on what these guys should be earning with their next paychecks. According to rumors, the Ducks are offering a 3-4 million bridge deal to their young star, whereas Secrets' camp is looking to get a deal resembling the ones his former teammates Cole Caulfield, Jack Hughes and Matt Baldy got. So, if that really is the case, I wouldn't count out the possibility of him getting traded before the season kicks off, because at the end of the day, Secrets was their top scorer last year with a 65-point campaign, And if the Ducks leadership group is not willing to invest in him long term due to his defensive shortcomings, it could be a wise decision to check the trade market, even how ridiculous that might end up sounding. Because, mind you, 
they got guys like McTavish and Carlson coming up who are better designed to play at center. So despite Seagrass's entertainment and offensive value, they are not in desperate need for center since both of those guys can score while being responsible defensively, which separates them from Z, who is just known for his elite offensive package. Drysdale's situation, though, I completely understand since he missed most of the last season due to an early season injury and hasn't really proved himself on the next level yet. So, while I believe that the Ducks still see him as their future top pairing offensive D man, I would also look into signing him to a two to three year deal since then again, they could take a look at their current roster and decide on which guys will be part of their core going forward and which names could be used as trade bait before starting their push towards becoming a contender again in the NHL. So while I said in the season preview teasers that the goal for the Ducks was to sign Seagrass to a long-term deal, I fully get why they are trying to get him signed to a shorter bridge deal, because like I said, that would mark another crossroad for their team when they need to recalculate their heading for the future. And also, because Troy Terry just went through a similar experience, so... I think there really isn't a right or wrong answer here, but when it comes to a 3 to 4 million AAV, I would almost file a complaint for that because, first of all, he has brought so much attention to their franchise in recent years due to his social media presence and on ice actions that the 4 million alone would only pay back the turnover generated from that. And second of all, he just registered his career high total of 65 points in 82 games, so. Does the Ducks front office really think that that will be his career high total for the rest of his NHL journey? Because I can tell you face to face that that ain't going to be the case. Just simple as that. So in a nutshell, if someone came to me and asked if I would sign Z to either a bridge deal or let's say 8 times 7.5 million deal, I would probably say at this point that the 8 times 7.5 would be the more tempting option since the gap is going up in the coming years. And there are already guys like Cousins and Boldy making similar dollars, so the differences between those guys end up being quite marginal in the points department. And the only real knock on his game is obviously the defensive side of the puck. And more than likely, we won't ever see him turn to a Selka winner, but in this day and age, you need to be willing to pay the young guys, and at least currently, he still has the biggest offensive upside in the Ducks roster, so why wouldn't you be willing to keep him despite it pinching a bit now that the cap hasn't gone up pretty much at all? But, like I said, there's two sides to the coin, and if he played his cards right and kept on growing his following after three years, he easily could be asking something near the 10 million mark. So, it'll be interesting to see how this saga ends up unfolding, because there are two tough guys currently going at it in Pat Brisson and Pat Burbig, who both want what's best for their own clients. And in this case, those are Zegres against the Ducks ownership and the big shareholders. But if we move past that, like I mentioned, the outlook isn't still very tempting for the Ducks since although they brought in some veteran leadership to their locker room this summer, the fact is that they are still finishing their rebuild and are at least two years away from competing for playoff spots, at least in my paper. So while I expect them to improve from last year, I wouldn't expect them to cause any headache in the West this year just purely due to the strength of the Pacific Division alone. They led Anthony Stolars, Jason Mingna, Kevin Shattenkirk, Derek Grant, Nathan Beaulieu, Simon Benoit, and Maxim Comtois walked to free agency and ended up replacing some of those names with veterans Alex Killorn, Radko Gudes, and Alex Daylock. 
plus defenseman Robert Haig and Ilya Lubushkin in addition to PTO signing Zach Cassian. So their roster hasn't changed that much from last year and still most of the weight is on the shoulders of their young players. So the expectation level for this bunch for next year is quite mild and I fully believe them manning one of the top spots in the upcoming NHL 2024 entry draft. They are slowly pushing their top prospects towards NHL ice and alongside their last year's Calder candidate Mason McTavish, you may see names such as Lucas Carlson, Jackson Lacombe, Lucas Dostal, Jacob Perot, Jessica Stujov, Braden Tracy, Drew Hellison, Olin Selweger and Tyson Hintz. So pretty much this team's main attraction next year will be their young guns just like with many rebuilding franchises. And since they won't have to worry about contracts next summer, this team could be one of the most active teams during next year's offseason because they will have the cap space and future assets in place to start attracting bigger names towards California. Only thing that really bothered me were the Killorn and Gouda signings because while those guys will bring some much-needed leadership and experience to their locker room and had to be paid in order to get them signed, I'm not too big fan of giving away multi-year plus 4 million deals to 33-year-olds who are closing down to retirement age. I love that they got paid, there's nothing wrong with that, and I wish that everyone could get their pension funds before retiring, but this team is seemingly in the brink of becoming competitive again in the next coming years, and those deals will factor in when negotiating future deals with their young guards, so not a big fan, but I guess Verbeek has his vision in place, so we will just work with what we have. And like I said, bottom two finish for the Ducks without a doubt if nothing drastic ends up happening. Scoring leader this year will be again Mr. Segrist, but I certainly wouldn't count out Troy Terry from the race either since he missed 12 games last year and was only 4 points away from Segrist when the season came to its end. But when comparing the numbers of these two, I feel like Segrist has the higher point upside and that's why he's going to be the pick for me. And when it comes to breakout player, I'm going to settle on Mason McTavish since while I believe that some of their newer names will surprise many fans with their point totals. I think McTavish is a home run pick for this spot due to his consistency and pro-ready game. So if he ends up manning their first line that also features their top scorers, Segrist and Terry, 65-point campaign shouldn't be that far from his reach. But other than that, it's pretty much just a crapshoot because you don't know what to expect from these young guys and names like Olin Selweger and Leo Carlson could start their seasons from the minors. So he's the sole name that stands out to me at least at this point. But remember to write Selweger's name on your arm with a permanent marker because he has offensive upside in his veins and will come out of the left field for many once he makes his debut in the bright lights. And finally, as a hot take, I'm going to say that both Pavel Mitchukov and Olin Selweger will end up making their opening night roster and will finish the year in the top 15 in rookie scoring at the end of 82 games. I was thinking about going with John Gibson getting traded, but while it may be seen as a hot take due to the fact that the Ducks have kept him through thick and thin, at this point, I would be surprised if they ended up keeping him past this offseason, so we will just go with the Hail Mary youngster take and move across the US-Canada border, where we will find one of the more intriguing teams of the upcoming NHL season, and that is the Calgary Flames. 
All right, so let's begin this segment by bringing up the latest headline out of Calgary that states that Mikael Backlund is going to be the franchise's new captain with a freshly baked two-year 4.5 million contract extension. So straight out of gates, one less problem to worry about, but the Flames still have Zadorov, Lindholm, Tanev, Hannifin, Dubé, and few prospects left to be signed, so they still haven't completely avoided the crisis, but this at least brings some hope to their uncertain situation. Greg Conroy became the new general manager of the franchise and Ryan Haska was appointed behind their bench, so anyone who wasn't completely satisfied with their previous leadership group was more than likely popping bottles after hearing about the changes. And after last year's complete collapse, the only way for this team is up. Am I right? Right? Well, at least I would hope so, because they've made huge changes within the past two years, but as we saw last year, changes demand time, and now the question becomes, how quickly can this team adapt to new systems, and are the players committed enough to challenge for a playoff spot in the tough Pacific division, when considering the fact that it is publicly known that more than a handful of their pending UFAs have expressed their unwillingness to re-sign with their current team. But on the hindsight, I have to say that if this team catches fire in the early season and shows signs of real progress, the extension talks could change dramatically and especially the backlund signing could change the perspective for many guys, one of them being Elias Lindholm who hasn't completely lined out the possibility of re-signing in Calgary, but only time and their overall play will tell what ends up happening in Alberta this year. Last year they ended up missing the playoffs by just two points and were right in the thick of it before they lost to the Preds in the second to last game of the season. And just like the Penguins in previous episode, inefficiency and inconsistency led to them missing the playoffs. And if you want some proof of that, let me tell you a few funny facts about their 22-23 campaign. First, they lost 30 games by just one goal. Most in the NHL. They lost 25 games when outshooting the opponent by over 10 shots and hit the third most post during last year's campaign, so you may add some bad luck in the mix as well. And as a cherry on top, you obviously can't forget the biggest single-season point drop record between seasons, and that is now held by their last summer's top acquisition, Jonathan Huberdo, who took the title with 55-point season, which was 60 dots less than in 2022. And oh yeah. Jacob Markstrom went from a Vesna finalist with 0.922 save percentage and 2.22 goals against average to a career-low 0.892 save percentage with 2.92 goals against average, so he might have casted for the new Saw movie with that performance, but I guess he wasn't picked for the film because at least I didn't see his name in the casting list. No, but seriously, their last campaign was astronomically unlucky and while my thought process is that you earn your bounces, that was almost historical showing, so I just can't imagine them having that kind of a lock two years in a row, and therefore believe that recency bias will play its part in many people's preseason predictions, and they end up making some of those folks look foolish with their early season takes. You gotta remember that they took the division title just a year prior, and yes, at that time, they still had both Matthew Kachuk and Johnny Hockey in their roster, but Jonathan Huber, Doe, and Mackenzie Weger aren't total bushfucks either, regardless of their last year's totals. 
Ubi has now changed to Bauer gear, and Uyghur was still strong defensively despite his big point drop-off, so I fully believe that we will see a totally different Flames team that becomes one of the top teams in the Pacific this year once again. Yes, they lost their top scorer Tyler Toffoli, deadline acquisitions Troy Stetcher and Nick Ritchie, plus Milan Lucic, Trevor Lewis and Michael Stone, but Igor Sarangovic is an unpolished project that could find another gear to his game in a top 6 role, and if the rookie Matt Coronado can take his spot in their top 9, he will add few Genos on the board for sure, so I'm definitely not saying that losing Toffoli wouldn't hurt, but things could have gone a whole lot of worse and the dead-legged fault-liners Lusic and Lewis would have been the least of your worries, so, like I just said, a lot will be on the line for the Flames when the action officially kicks off in just eight days. They lost 34 goals in total in top volley, and as we've concluded, since the team struggled with scoring last year, they need to find the consistency in prime scoring areas and to also fight off the bad luck that shadowed them throughout their previous campaign. And on top of that, even though their defensive metrics were quite mid last year, I would expect this team to be much, much better in their own end next year, because at least in my mind, they still have at least on paper one of the most stacked decors in the Western Conference. They have speed, skill, and physicality in their three pairings. Rasmus Andersson has proven to be a real impact to a top four defender for them. Noah Hannifin is an extremely underrated defensive-minded option who breaks up plays like it's nothing, similar to Chris Tanev. Meanwhile, Nikita Zadorov is the blue line boogeyman who's able to take your head off if you happen to take the first pass while admiring your freshly taped stick plate. And obviously you also gotta wonder where Oliver Shillington is with this game because he ended up missing the entire 22-23 campaign due to personal reasons and was outlined from their starting training camp roster as well. So. If he's ready to play, he would be a big help for the Flames' decor if he's able to return onto the ice at some point next season. So to me it's quite clear that something just didn't click in Calgary last year which led to a horrific outcome for their entire organization because, for the most part, the right pieces seem to be in place and they even have young guns pushing for the opening night spots from their farm system, so, in all honesty, it's hard for me to think that this team couldn't find its way to the postseason at least as a wildcard team because Central's mid-tier is completely wide open at least at this point. So call me an idiot, but to me there are signs point to postseason, especially if Markstrom is able to bounce back to at least league average numbers, which should be as easy as finding a door in one-bedroom apartment. And with that said, we might as well move on to my predictions. And first, of course, we have the scoring leader prediction. And this year, I expect Hubi to return closer to his 100-point self with the assistance of the rest of their top six forwards. Breakout-wise, I feel like Gegor Sharangovic will end up shining with his new squad and with that will put the steel trade aspect to bed. While I also expect Dylan Dubé to move closer to the 50-point mark bed. Since he was my guy already last year, I didn't want to put him in the spotlight two years in a row, but I certainly wouldn't be surprised if he ends the year with a massive point total if he earns top six role alongside their more offensively minded options. Dark Horse candidate is obviously previously mentioned Coronado since I see him as their next great goal scorer, but you also don't want to shut your eyes from Dustin Wolfkus. He's the real deal, and if Markstrom shows any signs that reminds us from his last year, he will earn more minutes and could be up for the Calder if the starting role ends up being his to lose. 
Unfortunately, Jacob Pelletti suffered an injury in their preseason game and will be sidelined for a few months due to a shoulder surgery, so that's why he isn't mentioned within the top names. But the true fans already know that I have big expectations for him as well, so I don't need to remind you that once he comes back to their lineup, he's going to earn his fair share of apples and genos, so keep that in mind as well as we progress through the new NHL season. And finally, when it comes to hot take, Let's just say that after completely missing the playoffs last year, this team makes a massive comeback and ends up advancing from the first round of the playoffs with Jonathan Huberdeau's lead who racks up a plus 100 points within the next 82 games. Yeah, all chips on the line, but we ain't here to take prisoners, so why not just go all in? Well, not completely all in, I ain't that out to lunch, but you get the point. But like I said, I believe in this team's comeback despite all the uncertainty that is currently linked to their franchise. But I feel like with their new management and a good start to their season, some of the guys could start to think about continuing their journey in Alberta. And Elias Lindholm could be the second domino that starts to push the rest of the way towards the same end goal. But those are pretty much my thoughts regarding the Flames, and next we will head to their provincial rival Edmonton, who once again carry massive expectations with them to the upcoming NHL campaign. So, at this point, we all know what's the MO for the Oilers and their two-headed monster of Mac Machine and Drysaddle for the upcoming year, so there's not too much to speculate about here since the Cup is all that matters for this team this year. Kelly Yamamoto, Clem Costin, Nick Bukestad, Tyler Benson and Devin Shore out, Drake Gajula, Lane Peterson and Connor Brown in, in addition to PTO signings Brandon Suter, Sam Gagne and Adam Ernie. So not that much has even changed roster-wise since we last time saw them in the icebox. And like I said in one of the previous episodes, Costin might end up being their biggest offseason loss since he had a surely showing in their bottom six last year and came a clutch couple of times during the playoffs, so if he ends up locking down his spot in Detroit, the Oilers just lost one of their puzzle pieces since their bottom six in fact has been their Achilles heel for as long as I can remember. Connor Brown will be an excellent addition to their top nine if in fact he stays healthy since already in last year's season previews I brought up his injury history, but if he manages to play upwards of 50 games this year, he will be a hell of an addition who can play on both sides of the puck alongside skill line mates such as Nuge, McJesus, Hyman, Dreisaitl, and even Evander Kane. Matthias Ekholm was brought in at the deadline, or actually just before it, and he was exactly what the Oils needed in their playoff push show. He will have a significant impact in locking down their defensive end and has to be ready to eat a lot of minutes because there ain't too many guys of his caliber who can keep the opposing top players in check through an 82-game schedule. So, when keeping that in mind, we obviously have to pay some attention to their blue paint as well since their 5 million net monitor Jack Campbell was brutal between their pipes last year. And eventually the rookie goalie Stuart Skinner ended up stealing the starting role from him and amazed some fans with his last year's performance. But that was only good for the regular season since once the tough games began, his numbers started crashing down. So, the question heading into next season will be, who's going to be their go-to guy? or do they just try to roll in with a two-goalie tandem of Skinner and Campbell 
who will then basically fight for the postseason starter role throughout the upcoming campaign. Well, whatever the case might end up being, the fact is that they gotta be ready to face some puck since their game isn't really based around solid defensive game as we know, and that showed during the playoffs when their oppositions just brutally focused on shutting down their key offensive cocks and used their subpar defense to their advantage every chance they got. And yes, I gave some tough love to Darnell Nurse and once again pointed out the fact that he's ridiculously overpaid related to his contributions, so... Despite the Ekholm addition, their biggest weakness still lays on their bottom six's inability to bring forth anything measurable offensively, while not being extremely sound offensively, in addition to arguably subpar decor and questionable goaltending situation as a whole. We know that they can score goals and that ride usually leads to a quite successful regular season results-wise, but as we once again saw, depth and defensive prowess are still the big factors that separate champions from contenders, and since they lack in both of those aspects, I'm not as hopeful on their part if they don't end up magically strengthening their roster before entering the playoffs later on during next spring. Their young guns Ryan McLeod, Dylan Holloway, and Philip Broberg will need to take their next step since if they are able to elevate their game to the next level, the depth issue will shrink to a tiny bit smaller concern because all those three guys are known for their solid defensive game, so if they can establish two lines that can play a responsible two-way game while their top guns do their damage offensively, and goalies hold their own between their pipes, this team will once again be a force to be reckoned with and will be an even bigger threat come to playoff time because, by the looks of it, the duo of McJason Bourne and Drysaddle are determined to completely destroy the lake next year by the way they've been training together this summer. So, while they still carry around those same issues that have shadowed their previous seasons, I feel like this year they are going to make some adjustments and improve their overall game within the next 82 game span. Evan Bouchard has become their true offensive blue line leader and if he can add just a tad bit more defense to his game, their second pairing of Ekholm and him will be one of the league's elite without questions. And if Stuart Skinner is able to repeat his last year's performance, I believe that they won't run into any goalie problems next year, which should secure them one of the top spots in the West without any hassle. So in a nutshell... Surefire playoff team in my books, their two-headed monster will terrorize the league this year, and while we may not see another 100-point season out of RNH, healthy Evander Kane and Connor Brown plus ever-consistent Zach Hyman should be able to cover that point last and establish a strong second offensive wave behind their big batters. Contract-wise, they are still in good shape where the only guys in need of new extension sheets are their depth guys, but the 2025 summer, though, is going to be the big one because Evan Bouchard and Leon Drysaddle are asking for their next paycheck, so the time is slowly running out if they aim to win the big one with this current core. Scoring leader should be pretty obvious. Do I really even need to address it? Number 97, 12 times out of 8. My breakout name will be Evan Bouchard, who is going to bang home a plus 70-point campaign, believe it or not, while Ryan McLeod is going to be my dark horse candidate since I really like his game, and like I said last year, I believe that he still has another gear to his game which should bring up his point total, so I wouldn't be surprised if we ended up seeing a 35-40 to point season out of him next year. 
You also may want to keep your eyes on Philip Broberg since while he may not put up huge offensive totals, he will be a nice defensive asset for the Oz that they desperately need on their back end. And I might even add Xavier Burgos' name in the mix as well because he could get his cup of coffee in the bright lights once injuries start rolling later on during the season. And finally, as a hot take, like Sidney Crosby said, I think there's no limit to what this guy can accomplish offensively. I'm going to say Connor McJesus M plus 160 point campaign. So yeah, either he has a full 82 game campaign or he just completely takes over and puts up over two points per game average. Pick your poison. Super Mario is the last guy to break the 160 point threshold back in 1996 and overall just two players in the NHL history have accomplished that feat so while to some it may not seem like a hot take I can tell you that already his last year's point total was almost unheard of so if he manages to join the greats number 66 and number 99 in the 160 club we can just basically end the debate about the best forward of the modern era. So pretty much the outlook for their upcoming season is fairly similar to their previous ones where there's question marks all across the board that are not linked to their offensive firepower. So if they can manage to pull through and improve some of those aspects I listed before, their unbeatable power play will carry them far next year yet again. But that's about it. Really nothing new here. So let's just continue our march onwards and head to West Coast where we find the franchise that is looking to avenge their previous two first round exits within the upcoming NHL campaign. And that team obviously is the LA Kings who looked poised for a deep playoff push until they got faced against the Oilers yet again in the first round and got bounced in six games thanks to Mac OP and his German Shepherd. But this summer they've really amped up the stakes by adding lots of depth to their roster as well as top six skill in the form of Pierre-Luc Dubois, Andreas England, Michal Maltsev, Steven Santini and Trevor Lewis. But they also completely reshaped their blue paint by replacing Cal Peterson and Jonas Korvisala with Cam Talbot and David Riddick, who will be competing in their three-goalie rotation with Phoenix Copley, who was extended earlier on in the spring. But despite these changes, the question still remains. Have they reached the level of the powerhouses such as Vegas, Edmonton, or even Dallas? Well, I got some good news for you, Kings fans, because I truly believe that they are now equipped with enough firepower to challenge the other top dogs of the West. You gotta remember that they were missing Kevin Fiala for half their playoff series, who put up humble six points in three contests, so the end result could have been completely different if he would have been in their lineup for the full series since most of their games against the Oilers were extremely tight battles until the final whistle, so now with probably the deepest center core of the NHL, they should be ready to take down one of those giants when the cup battles begin again in April 2024. They finished the regular season with a record of 47 wins, 25 losses and 10 overtime losses, but were struggling with keeping their neck clean at times thanks to their mediocre goaltending and especially their penalty kill which was uncharacteristically weak within the 82 games with a miserable 75.84 overall percentage. But Vladislav Gavrikov by himself brought a lot of certainty to their backline and could end up establishing one of the league's best shutdown pairings next year with his deep partner Matrua, who both are extremely underrated blue liners in the NHL. They dealt away Sean Walker, Sean Dersey, 
Rasmus Kupari, Keith Villardi and Alex Aya follow during the summer period and let Jonas Korpisalo and Zach McEwen walk for free when the free agency doors opened up. So quite a lot has changed since the opening night of 22-23 season and especially losing Villardi, Derzy and Aya follow could have an impact in the team's overall performance. But like I said, they are now operating with one of the deepest center cores in the league and have youth coming up the ranks in the form of Quinton Byfield, Brent Clark, Arthur Kaliev. Jordan Spence and Tobias Bjornfoot in the forefront without forgetting guys like Akil Thomas and Samuel Fagimo. So, while they lost some excellent pieces from their roster, those holes could be plugged up in a moment's notice if some of those guys take the next step towards NHL stardom. And therefore, I believe that they won't regret their decisions for long because rest of the core stayed pretty much the same from last year. I still believe that many fans are sleeping on Dubois mostly due to his off-ice actions and I can't blame them since he has earned his problem child tag, no questions about it, but now that he has his long-term partner figured out and a career-high season in his back pocket, spiced up by a four-point playoff performance, I fully believe that we are about to witness another milestone year from him alongside previously mentioned Swiss magician Kevin Fiala. Mikey Anderson also doesn't earn the attention he deserves as one of their most consistent defensive plugs, and Trevor Moore is also a name that flies under the radar for many, so if their top prospects can notch their game just a tad bit forward and end up becoming the next wave in LA that will take over once the veterans Kopitar and Dowdy end their careers in the big league, they have seriously nothing to worry about and the quick rebuild can be seen as a hugely successful operation as a whole. So all in all, I really like the Rods for the upcoming season. They have depth and hidden offensive firepower in their top nine. And I should be criminalized for not giving attention to their Swede, Adrian Kempe, who has become probably my favorite Kings player to follow. So if you haven't already laid your eyes on this guy, now is the time because the speedy winger should be harassing the 50-goal mark next year because 40 is already in his backpack from the prior season. And their defense is also pretty underrated that features good balance of two-way prowess and scoring ability. So I expect big things from this team next year and only subpar goaltending and injuries can stop them on their tracks to be completely honest. They are very sound team defensively and showed that during last year's playoffs, Kopi and Dano can shut down the opposing team's best players with ease, but the main concerns really is linked to their netminders who have been average at best during previous seasons. Yes, Phoenix Copley showed some glimpses last year, but isn't really tested in the postseason, so I don't have full belief in him despite decent numbers from the prior campaign, but if they can manage to avoid being complete hoses this year, this team is a lock for the playoffs, and then we will start to recalculate their odds yet again. Additionally, the only core guys that are in need of new contracts next year are pretty much Matt Rua and Victor Arvidsson, plus their young names Kaliev and Byfield, so it's looking pretty good for them on that front as well, and they can just focus on delivering without worrying too much about upcoming free agents and such. And when we move on to my predictions, first off we of course have the top score, and this year I'm going to go with the Swiss beautician Kevin Fiala because he's just a machine offensively. And if he can stay healthy for the full year, he is going to pass the point per game average with ease and whistle on his way there. Whereas my breakout player prediction is second year in a row now, Mr. Quinton Byfield, because I'm going to lean on the odds. And if you're not going to make your breakthrough alongside Kopi and Kempe, 
I don't know where it is then possible because the Canadian Man Mountain has the tool set in place to become a real impact player for them. And frankly already showed that during the playoffs with 4 points in 6 games. So honestly I'm expecting a 50 point season from him and that could even end up being a low ball if he's able to stay healthy for the full 82 game campaign. Brent Clark should also be amongst the top Calder names this year if he gets the second round power play minutes on the point, but since I've been waiting for Byfield's breakthrough, I'm going to stick with him because too many times I've been a year too early with these picks and therefore don't want to fall into that trap yet again. And since I already announced Byfield's plus 50 point season, I probably have to adjust my hot takes, so Let's just go with Adrian Kempe's plus 50 goal year that also leads him to cap home their inner scoring title. And I know that some of you may be saying that that ain't even that hard of a take given his goal scoring prowess and role as their first line winger, but buddy, scoring in the NHL ain't easy and only a handful of guys are able to do it each year, so it surely ain't bulletproof prediction, but like I said, I've become one of his cheerleaders and believe that his underrated shot will lead him to a very successful year on a personal level. But that's pretty much my line of thinking regarding the Kings. I expect them to be one of the powerhouses in the West this year, but the goaltending aspect is the thing that worries me the most, and because of it, I would be very surprised if they didn't address it before the deadline, because both Talbot and Riddick are just signed for this year, so. They pretty much are just cannon fodder at this point, so expect to see them landing one of the big names I've mentioned in the previous season preview episodes. Next up we got the San Jose Sharks, and in a nutshell, next year is going to be a big draft year for the Great Whites, and they are expected to be an automatic point machine for the rest of the teams throughout the next 82-game season. And purely because of it, we won't waste too much time going through the minute details, because we all know that the only entertainment value regarding this team is tied to their young guys, Thomas Bordello, William Eklund, Daniel Gustin, Henry Throne, Shakir Mukamadoulin, and rest of the crew. Last year they finished 7th in the division, and honestly it would be straight up idiotic if this bunch still tries to stay relative in the Pacific this year, because it would only mean worse odds for the upcoming NHL draft, so... Anything more than a bottom finish would be a disaster in my books because draft capital is the only thing that should matter for this franchise for the next three to four years. Markus Nutivara hung up his skates in the offseason. James Reimer, Steven Lorenz, Jonah Gadjovic, Derek Puglio, Andreas Jonsson, Eric Carson, Yevgeny Svechnikov and Noah Gregor exited during the free agency. Meanwhile, Mackenzie Blackwood, Carl Burrows, Giovanni Smith, Ryan Carpenter, Anthony Duclair, Philip Sedina, Mikael Granlund, Jan Ruda, and Mike Hoffman were brought in in hopes of possibly gathering some additional resources from them near the deadline time. Anthony Duclair will be out the door before the deadline clock starts running, and that's a guarantee because you won't find too many guys of his caliber with a 3 million price tag, so I can only imagine that their GM Mike Greer will have a bucket load of offers on his table for the left-handed speedster throughout next year. Meanwhile, Philip Sedina's rejuvenation project is also something to look out for since the former first-round pick really bet on himself by terminating his 1.8 million contract with the Red Wings. That would have run until 2025, so he left a lot on the table by choosing to relocate in the summer, but quite honestly, 
It would surprise me a bit if he wouldn't find his offensive touch in San Jose because he has all the marbles in his hands now. And if he fails to make an impact, he can pretty much say goodbye to his NHL future because not that many teams are any more willing to waste dollars on a guy that can't produce offensively, while not being that sound defensively so. In that sense, the setting is perfect and I kind of hope that he makes his opportunity count before it's too late. I also strongly think that it's been a matter of confidence and since he's been shadowed by high expectations throughout his young NHL career in Detroit, now as he gets to a market where pretty much no one is expecting anything from you and half the population doesn't even know that hockey exists, you can just focus on your game and try to make most of it so. I don't know about you, but in my mind, there's only one way, and that is up. Well, regardless, like I said, this is the perfect opportunity for him to dictate his future heading, and because he's surrounded with seasoned veterans as well as few hungry youngsters, if he gets the opportunity alongside guys like Hurdle and Duclair, I think he's going to pounce on it and get another go in the NHL after the season is done. But overall, I don't see them taking many more wins than last year with their current roster since most of their top 18 names are either have beans, good have beans, or straight up career bottom liners. So, how much can you expect from that kind of a bunch? Not to mention their net mining duo that will be hand fed box throughout the 82 game season. But the good thing regarding those two is the fact that they still might have some upside left. So, if they end up impressing in the Sharks uniform, which is a long shot to be completely honest. They might get another chance somewhere else because there's a need for capable backups in the league currently, but then when you take a glance at their current decor, you quickly realize that it might end up being a pipe dream, so at least that's out there, and I guess at this point I'm just trying to find some positives here for the upcoming season, so let's just cut the shit and move on to aspects that seem more realistic. So yeah. That is pretty much the x-ray of their current situation. They have some good offensive pieces in their system that might get dealt at some point next year, and I would imagine that even Thomas Hurdle wouldn't be out of the picture despite his new-ish contract extension with the Sharks. So, with very mid-offense, subpar defense, and questionable goaltending, you won't achieve much, and that's exactly why I hope this team will focus on tanking as hard as possible, because... We want to see the Shark Tank bowling again in the postseason sooner rather than later. And that's exactly the best way to do it in their current situation. I guess I'm going to give the top score honors to Hurdle because I feel like Logan Couture will start to show more signs of aging this upcoming season. And with it, his totals end up experiencing a small hit from his previous season. But at the same time, while saying that, I wonder if it just belongs to that specific tier of players that can just rack up points regardless of the situation. So, he easily could take the top spot, but I'm going to lean on the ever-joyful check this time around. Breakout-wise, I'm going to stick with my guy William Eklund, because now he has one full year behind him in the AHL and isn't completely new to NHL hockey either, so once again... I'm going to go with my earlier pick because I don't want to look foolish after 82 games, but if we go a bit outside of that, their last year's acquisitions, Fabian Sederland and previously mentioned Philip Sedina could be good shouts as well because both guys possess some offensive upside in their game and are still young enough to bring up their numbers if given the opportunity in a top 9 role. And lastly, as a hot take, I'm going to stick with Sedina here as well because I already created you the image and 
Since not that many people still believe in his NHL upside, I might as well go balls on the wall here and say that he puts up career high plus 35 points with his new team in California. And mind you, there were only five players last year in the Shark Tank that achieved that milestone, so I've set my expectations pretty high for his first campaign in his new hometown. But at least, now we have something to look out for while following Alexander Barabanov's journey to a plus 50-point guy and the overall development of their young Sharks. But that's that. Bottom finish is the expectation for me because I just can't see them beating the Ducks in the overall standings and that would be the ideal situation for the Sharks at this point, quite frankly so. Lots of misery inbound for the Sharks fans, but at least their new GM Mike Greer has brought some light to the overall equation with his moves and that is what the Sharks fans have to lean on for the next upcoming four to five years. Now though, let's head to Seattle to see if I'm on board in the new Seattle Kraken playoff wagon. Well, sadly, I have to say that I'm not fully convinced yet, but let's take a closer look because I might change my opinion before giving my final predictions for next year's division standings. So last year they came out the gate screaming and were on top of the Pacific division for some time, but... Once the new calendar year flipped over, they realized that, fuck, we still got like 30 games left before the playoffs. And pretty much at that point, teams started walking over them left and right. But in the end, they ended up making their way to the playoffs as the first wildcard team and upset the defending Stanley Cup champs Colorado in the first round before hitting the wall in the conference semifinals against the Dallas Stars in six games. But last year they really showed resilience and how far a well-coached cohesive two-way unit can make it without any significant NHL superstars. And a testament of that is obviously their first-round matchup against the Avs where they just purely overpowered the Mile High City reps with their constant four-line pressure and hard-nosed playstyle. But at the same time, you could see that in their matchup against the Stars, the top-tier players separated themselves and figured out ways to break their play apart. Which brings up the questions, was that their true limit and do they need those X-factors before actually being considered as true cup contenders? And my honest answer here is absolutely. You tell me how many past cup winners haven't had game changers on their lineup and I'll eat my words, so go right ahead. Actually, you could probably argue that the 2019 St. Louis Blues team would fit that script, but That team was stacked from top to bottom, so I wouldn't necessarily consider them being one. But at the same time, it could be counted as an exception to the rule, so yeah, once in a full moon you get those sorts of events, but for the most part, you need at least one real difference maker, and if you're arguing that the Golden Knights are another example. I get the point you're trying to make, but do you seriously think that Seattle has guys like Jack Eichel and Mark Stone on their lineup? Not to mention a cup winner like Alex Petrangelo. Yeah, exactly. So that goes up the hoop. They had quite a change on the roster front this summer as names such as Morgan Geeky, Carson Soucy, Daniel Sprong, Ryan Donato, Martin Jones and Jonas Donsko ended up leaving the team while free agents Brian Dumoulin, Kaller Yamamoto, Pierre-Edouard Bellemare and Devin Shore were brought in to fill up those holes left by the previously mentioned gentlemen. And don't get me wrong, 
I quite like the roster's current outlook because they still possess that depth that they are going to need when not having that one X factor on their lineup. And it kind of has caused a similar effect to the one in Vegas where so-called leftovers or misfits have started to carve themselves new roles in the NHL, which truly turned into a success story in their second season in the NHL. Vince Dunn found another level to his game. Jared McCann has become a bona fide top six forward in his new environment. Eli Tolvanen found his new calling in Seattle as a two-way sniper on their middle six, while guys like Oliver Bjorkstrand, Alexander Wenberg, Yanni Gord, Andre Burakovsky, Jordan Eberle, Adam Larson and Jamie Alexiak have found their callings as the perfect supporting cast to their top-tier operators. And you also can't count out their top traffic, Matthew Beniers' value for the team since the speedy two-way threat took home the Calder Trophy with a 57-point season, and they still have Shane Wright in the pipeline waiting, so their center spot should be secured for many more years to come. Their both special teams, though, were very mid last year, and it is obvious that that needs to change if they aim to challenge for the top spots in the highly competitive Pacific Division this year. While you also can't forget their biggest question mark, a.k.a. the goaltending, that was more than suspect during last year's regular season, but still somehow Philip Grubauer was able to turn on some kind of a switch and clearly won the goalie battle against Alexander Georgiev during their first round matchup against the Avs. So which version are they going to get next year is an intriguing aspect to follow, but at least they have two capable backups waiting for their chance to strike in Joey Decord and Chris Dreger, so even if Grubauer ends up looking like Swiss cheese in their crease, they got few guys behind him that may take his role if the moment demands it. And also, some may still question the strength of their decor, me included, so while I could easily see them finding their way to the playoffs, I also remember their first year in the NHL without forgetting the overall competitiveness of the West this upcoming year, so for some reason, I fear that this team is going to fall back down to earth after their terrific 22-23 campaign because pretty much just their quick and efficient start and Calgary's total joking led them to the postseason in the first place. So if they don't get as good of a start to their upcoming year, could they be the team that is in the constant survival battle throughout the next NHL campaign? I guess we just have to wait and see. But definitely after seeing their last year's performance, my trust in this team has grown while at the same time it makes me think if this was just a one-of-a-kind season because I can clearly see their first year in the show in the background, but if all goes well, they avoid major injuries and Philip Grubauer can shut the door. Yes, definitely I could see them repeating their last year's success and making their way back to the postseason thanks to their suffocating four-line grind game. And what is also something to look out for is that they have a bunch of pending UFAs and RFAs currently on their roster, so more than likely this upcoming season will determine their manner of approach for the offseason as well, because many guys are playing for their paychecks, and sometimes that yields good results, so that should count to something as well, am I right? Last year, Jared McCann took their scoring title with the career-high 70-point campaign, and I feel like he's going to remain on top given that he has truly blossomed in his new role as their first-line winger. Matthew Beniers and Andre Burakovsky, though, should be right on his heels if especially Burakovsky is fully healthy and gets back on the horse offensively. And this might be a bit of a hot take, but 
I'm going to give the breakout candidate badge to their young defenseman Riker Evanskis. I'm fully convinced that he will make their opening night roster and will surprise some people with his game this upcoming season. Obviously, I'm expecting big things from Matthew Beniers as well and for him to get closer to the top spot of their inner scoring table, so 70 points should be in his sights, no questions about it. And obviously, Shane Wright is the big question mark here because the only thing that is sure at this point is that he won't be playing any more CHL games, but everything else related to his NHL slash AHL role is up in the air, so he's going to be the dark horse for the Kraken for the upcoming NHL campaign. And oh yeah, keep your eyes on Ty Cartier as well because he was a true spark plug for this team after his call-up, so don't be surprised when you see him bowling around the ice for the next 82-game span. And finally, as a hot take, I'm going to say that Eli Tolvanen puts up plus 30 Genos and finishes the year with 50 points in his back pocket. Exactamente. We ain't wasting bullets around here because after all, this is the last season preview episode of the year. No, but on a serious note, we all know how lethal of a shooter he can be, and if he ends up on the half wall of their first line power play unit instead of Burakovsky, he can easily tuck home a couple more Genos, and after his arrival in Seattle, he had 27 points in 48 games plus 8 in 14 playoff games, so he didn't completely use a basic take, but he needs to stay healthy and get those power play minutes, so... We'll see if they end up choosing his artillery over Burakovsky's small arms bar when the action starts to ramp up. But overall, an extremely interesting year coming up for the Kraken given the drastic changes between their first and second year in the league, which will beg the question, which Kraken team are we going to see? And then we've arrived to the second to last team of this week's episode and it is of course our beloved Vancouver Canucks who ended up being a complete bunch of disappointments last year, excluding names Pedersen, Kuzmenko, Hughes, who by the way was named as their new captain, and maybe JT Miller, but for anyone else besides those guys, the melody was quite somber, but Rick Tuckett was appointed to change the rhythm in BC, so we'll see if the competitive nature of the West will end up making that transition as hard as possible for their new bench boss when the action starts in just few days. Well, you know by now that names Horvat, Shen, Steelman and Lazar left the team at the deadline and never looked back, but also Vitaly Kravtsov decided to head back to Russia, while Colin Delia, Carl Burroughs, Ethan Bear, Travis Dermott, Spencer Martin, and most recently Tanner Pearson were headed elsewhere. Meanwhile, names Ian Cole, Tail Blugers, Carson Susi, Matt Irwin, Pius Suter, and Casey Desmith were brought in to bring extra depth to their otherwise quite top-heavy roster. Anthony Beauvillier and Philip Ronek will kick off their first full seasons in Vancouver as well, so this team has seen quite a turnover since last trade deadline, but Due to their recent history, which by the way features a lot of underachieving, many are still extremely cautious with their expectations and I don't blame them because I as well am quite on edge when trying to figure out what their upcoming season is going to be looking like. Last year they came out the gates with a full-on flaccid dick which pretty much sealed their destiny from the get-go and they really couldn't get their engines going until Tuckett stepped behind their bench so if they realistically want to keep playing meaningful games beyond Thanksgiving, 
I would certainly advise them to pop you Viagras before the first few puck drops because you just witness what happens when you are not ready for three rounds with the hungry neighbor, Cougar. No, but on a more serious note, the main aspects that led to their mediocre performance were their net mining and overall defenses. They allowed eighth most goals against in the entire league and were the worst penalty killing team on the side as well. So, when knowing those facts, you just cannot be considered as a possible playoff team, and those factors became to be the main drivers for their offseason moves. But while they brought in some defensive help in the form of Irwin, Susie, and Cole, I'm not that sure if they end up swinging the pendulum completely to the opposing side since they are not known as the most leg-footed blue liners in the league, but I guess you could have done worse, so I'm just going to give them a chance and see what ends up happening when the action starts in just eight days. Thatcher Demko has to have a bounce-back season if they realistically want to fight for playoff spots in the West, and honestly at times, he just needs to be the best player on the ice because I'm not fully sold on their current decor, like I said, and I fully believe that he's capable of doing so because he has showed that in previous seasons and has now healthier and more defensively-minded options playing in front of him. So I myself would put my money on his comeback tour if, in fact, he's able to stay healthy throughout the next 82-game campaign and their defense doesn't end up leaving him on an island like has happened multiple times in the past. And after all that, I fully understand why people are so skeptical about their playoff odds, and quite frankly, even when it comes to overall improvement, because we've seen them getting their lunch handed to them multiple years in a row now, but I would honestly be quite surprised if we don't end up seeing any improvement from last year, because they still have their top offensive guns in Pedersen, Kuzmenko, Miller, and Hughes. And when you add to that list of names Beauvilliers, who seemed to find a new spark in his new hometown, plus Brock Besser, who is coming off of a 55-point campaign, two-way demon Ilya Mikheyev, who missed half a season due to a mid-season injury, and even Connor Garland, whose last year was quite a dud in all honesty. That ain't recipe for instant success, but at least, that is something to build on, and like with the Isles, I might end up losing my trust in this team within the next 82-game span if they end up falling on their face, and in the aftermath, Elias Pedersen ends up saying sayonara to Aquilini's local clown show. But until then, I preserve my small spark of trust in my chest pocket and hope that they can finally take some steps the other way, because we watch them time after time eat shit, and that overall ain't good for their franchise, but neither is it to the entire league itself. Philip Ronick and Niels Höglander are also names that could be surprising spark plugs for the team next year and are expected to take even bigger roles on their lineup this year. Plus, even Arthur had to good sneak into their bottom six alongside many other young names if injuries start to throw this team around like has happened in previous few campaigns. Elias Pedersen will more than likely cap home another 100-point season and therefore will be my pick for their scoring later. And honestly, I would even expect him to tuck home a few more Genos and get closer to the 45-goal benchmark overall. I will put my trust in Anthony Beauvillier when it comes to breakout name, because if last year is anything to go by, we are about to witness him breaking the 50-point mark for the first time in his pro career. And finally, as a hot take, 
I'm going to put my remaining trust on their playoff odds and say that this team will squeak in the playoffs as a wildcard team. Yeah, that sounds a bit ridiculous, but that's exactly what the hot takes are for. I think that they have the pieces in place to make that happen, and after all, it's going to be a massive year for their entire franchise since Elias Pedersen's current deal is coming to its end, and so are many other deals, including the horrendous Tyler Myers contract. So, this year will pretty much end another chapter in the Canucks history book, which will either end with or without their star center from Sweden. So, hopeful optimism is my manner of approach for their upcoming season, and I'm gonna be honest and tell you that I might drastically overlook some of the red flags, but I feel like at some point this misery has to end, and since this is pretty much a decisive year for their organization, I feel like it's best to place the big bets on the table now when there's still some hope left. And what a perfect way to end our this year's season previews, then with the reigning Stanley Cup champion Vegas Golden Knights who are not that surprisingly seen as one of the top candidates to hoist the cup when the action stops again later in the spring of 2024. And purely because of it, we won't waste the next 20 minutes to speculate about their upcoming season since we all know that their roster stayed intact for the most part. If you count out Riley Smith, Lauren Brossois and deadline acquisitions Jonathan Quick and Theo Bluger, so... It would be idiotic to think that this team would fall off the face of the earth after getting their first eight of NHL royalty just a few months earlier. Certainly they'll have to pay a cup tax in the form of early season struggles, there's no questions about that. And if their previous seasons are anything to go by, this team will feel the injury effects at some point, so not much has changed since last year and that's why there's really no reason to dissect this team into small pieces since if nothing drastic happens, this team will be one of the 16 teams fighting for the big one after 82 games, but my intuition tells me that it's going to take some time before they start rolling again due to cup celebrations and all that jazz. They were in the juggernauts of the West last year, and for example, their both special teams were quite mid within the 82 games. And pretty much the only question mark attached to them is linked to their blue paint since by the looks of it, Robin Lehner is going to miss another year of NHL action so the pressure will be laid on Aiden Hills and Logan Thompson's shoulders, who aren't really tested in a full 82-game campaign. But since the Knights possess one of the most stacked decors in the league and both their netminders have shown that they can stop pucks with great efficiency, the worry disappears quite quickly and moves over to injury front, because four starters, their 21-22 campaign was terrorized by multiple injuries to key players, and even last year, many of their top guns including netminders were sidelined for great bunches at the time, so could that become the big obstacle between them and another Stanley Cup parade is the question here. If not, expect to see this team man one of the top spots in the West and advancing to the postseason as one of the favorites. And just before we move on to my predictions, I gotta tell you that it's going to be another big year for them on the roster front since guys like Jonathan Marcheso, Chandler Stevenson, Alec Martinez, Mike Amadio, and William Carrier could hit the free agent market next summer if things go south, so their GM Kelly agreement has to work out some serious business deals once again in order to keep this team ahead of the curve, but that's exactly what he's been doing for the past couple of years, so 
don't be surprised if we end up seeing sudden changes to their outlook the closer we get to the NHL postseason. Then it's time to throw in my final team-specific predictions for the year, and first we have the scoring leader pick, and if you paid any attention to this year's NHL playoffs, you couldn't have missed Mr. Jack Eichel, who stepped up to a whole nother realm when the cup was on the line, and because of it, I feel like we are now about to witness a big offensive year from him as their most lethal offensive tool. Breakout-wise, we got few names to select from, and this time I'm going to give the honors to forward Ivan Barbashev, because I feel like we just got our first taste of what's about to come in the coming years with his new line mates Jack Eichel and Jonathan Marchesso, but since I feel like there's also another name that is going to make some noise within this roster, I'm also going to point out another Russian from their lineup, a man called Pavel Dorofeyev, because he is pretty much expected to replace Riley Smith in their top nine, due to his great showings during last year's regular season. I'm also expecting a big year from Logan Thompson because last year he already showed signs of possibly becoming their future starter, but a mid-season injury ended up derailing his progress before getting his day with the cup. And as the last hot take of this year's season previews, I'm going to predict a plus 100-point season for their number one center, Jack Eichel. And yes, you heard me right. Injuries have pretty much kept him as just a point-per-game player to this point, but after his most recent milestone, I feel like the old Jackie boy will cement his name amongst the elite forwards in the league and ends the season with three digits in his score sheet. But all in all, that's pretty much it. They are still an extremely stacked bunch that can only be stopped by injuries, so there you have it. All 32 teams covered and the only thing remaining are the standings and trophy predictions, so... Let's get those out of the way as well with the same breath. And we will start from the Pacific Division where the Oilers take the top spot. LA takes home the second home ice advantage card. Defending Cup champs Golden Knights fight their way to the third spot. And the top four will be completed by the Calgary Flames who return back to postseason action. Seattle takes the fifth spot while the Canucks just missed the playoff train and fall to 6th place in the division. Anaheim gets decent odds for the upcoming draft as the second worst team in the division, and from the bottom, we will find the San Jose Sharks, so Oils, Kings, Golden Knights, Flames, and Kraken make the playoffs from the Pacific. Dallas will take the top spot in the Central, followed by Colorado in the second place, Minnesota takes down the third spot and advances to the playoffs as the final team from the Central Division. Meanwhile, Winnipeg sells at the deadline, but is still able to clinch home the fourth spot in the division. St. Louis lands in the fifth spot and ends up missing the playoffs once again. Arizona takes up some ground and advances to the sixth spot in the division. Meanwhile, the Preds fall to seventh place without Yusuf Saros and Connor Bedard's Chicago Blackhawks obviously takes home the best lottery odds for the upcoming draft from the Central Division. Then in the East, Carolina caps home the top spot from the Metro, followed by the New Jersey Devils. Rangers take home the third spot and secure a Hudson River rematch for the playoffs. And the final playoff ticket from the Metro will go to Pittsburgh Penguins, who return back to postseason action after a one-year hiatus. Islanders end up missing the playoffs as the fifth-best team in the Metro. Washington ends up selling at the deadline and lands decent nights for the upcoming draft with a sixth-place finish. 
while the Blue Jackets take home the seventh place in the division and change their GM in the process, and obviously John Tortorella and the Philadelphia Flyers will get the best odds from the Metro for a top three pick for the next summer's NHL entry draft. Toronto is crowned as the champion of the Atlantic Division. Florida earns a home ice advantage for the playoffs with a second place finish. Buffalo continues their strong form and makes its way back to the playoffs after 12 long years. And the final remaining playoff ticket will be handed out to Ottawa Senators who end Tampa Bay's playoff reign, who won't be able to overcome their early season struggles without their elite netminder Andre Vasilevsky. Tampa slides to the fifth spot while last year's President's Trophy winner Boston Bruins experiences the brutal side effects of life without Krejci and Bergeron. Meanwhile, the Wings cap home the seventh spot, followed by the Montreal Canadiens, who enter another offseason with tremendous odds for the upcoming NHL lottery. So all in all, I'm expecting quite big changes to NHL's current power balance, and especially Andrew Vasilevsky's rehabbing process will determine Tampa Bay's fate this year, because they have to depend on Jonas Johansson for the first 20 or so games if they can haul in some veteran from the free agent market. And while the expected timeline for his return is somewhere around six to eight weeks, I would argue that it will end up taking longer just based on my own personal experience. So if he ends up staying in the press box longer than expected and the Bolts can't just purely outscore their opponents on every given night, I expect very tough year for the back-to-back champs and that was probably the biggest singular aspect that ended up making me adjust the standings when I heard the news about his back surgery. So to conclude, here come the playoff teams in a nutshell. Edmonton, Dallas, LA, Colorado, Vegas, Minnesota, Calgary, and Seattle from the West. Plus Carolina, Toronto, New Jersey, Florida, Buffalo, Rangers, Ottawa, and Pittsburgh from the East. Carolina will end up taking home the President's Trophy, and on the personal level, my trophy predictions will go as follows. Art Ross, Rocket Richard, and Ted Lindsay will go to McDavid, and it's not even worthwhile to negotiate about it. Drysaddle obviously will be a runner-up for the Art Ross, and the duo will be followed by Nathan McKinnon and Austin Matthews. Drysaddle will also be on McDavid's heels in the Richard race, Meanwhile, Matthews and Jason Robertson will fill the remaining spots following those two offensive juggernauts. Kale McCart takes back the Norris Trophy with a healthy season, while Miro Heiskanen finally gets the nod as the top three nominee alongside Rasmus Dahlin, who will have a beastly season offensively alongside their new number one gun, Tate Thompson. Connor Bedard takes home the Calder Trophy, followed by runners-up Logan Cooley and Adam Fantilli. Nico Hischer earns the Selge honors, as I mentioned in the Metropolitan season preview. Meanwhile, Austin Matthews and Anze Kopitar take the remaining spots in the Selge voting. Igor Shesterkin steals the Vesna trophy from his countryman Ilias Rockin, and Jake Ottinger will be the other candidate for the best netmatter in the NHL award. William M. Jennings' trophy goes to Carolina's tandem of Freddie Anderson and Peter Kochetkov. Nathan McKinnon takes home the Hart Trophy ahead of McJesus and Kirill Kaprizov. And lastly, Rod the Bod finally ends up winning the Jack Adams Award as the best head coach in the league following their President's Trophy season. Dallas's Pete DeBoer and Buffalo's Don Granado follow the two-step man rocket as the runners-up for the Adams Award.
And then as we make our way to the NHL playoffs, Dallas Stars and Edmonton Oilers make their way to the conference finals from the West, while Carolina and New York Rangers face up in the Eastern Conference Finals matchup. And eventually, Dallas ends up beating the two-headed monster of McDavid and Drysaddle, advances to the finals to face the Hurricanes, and ends up taking home the cup for the first time since 1999. So, there you have it. Place your bets if you dare to do so. An extremely intriguing NHL season coming up that is going to feature a fair share of drama and fanfare, so I'm really hyped up about the upcoming nine months of NHL hockey since, first of all, it seems like the differences between the top teams and the rest has narrowed down a bit due to NHL's current cup crunch, and second of all, because we have one of the deepest rookie classes ever hitting the NHL shores this fall, so there are numerous different aspects to follow within the next 82-game segment. Eight more days still remaining, so there's still few nights left until the NHL Buffet opens up, so before the action starts, let me know how did you feel about this new setting and how did you feel about my overall takes for the upcoming NHL season. I hope that after these four episodes you have a pretty good understanding of where we stand with each organization and what's there still left to be uncovered before the action kicks off, so if you feel like you got a comprehensive understanding of the current NHL landscape and felt like these past four episodes brought some value for you, I would really appreciate it if you left a rating for the podcast and maybe even told your deep partner about this show because he may need the update as well. And while it may not lead to any more kills on a personal level, at least he's ready to face the new NHL season with my four-hour season preview package. And don't forget to mention him as well that next week we are going to feature another guest on the show, so that should come to something as well. But with that said, we are pretty much done with our season previews. I gotta be totally honest and tell you that these four episodes took the wind out of my sails thanks to all the data and stats I had to crawl through, so I really hope that you enjoyed because I put a lot of hours into this preseason package, so I also hope that it translates to you as well. Leave your thoughts in my DMs if you feel like I was completely out to lunch with my takes, or if some of them gave you something to look out for for the next 82-game marathon. And most of all, thank you so much for stopping by. It means a world to me, so hopefully these four episodes have given you something extra, and you end up becoming part of this ride from this point on. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate you taking the time and do not forget to come back next week to hear another voice on the sound waves alongside mine. Have an awesome week, you beauty. Stay tuned. Stay safe. Until next time. All right.